This is the Swampscott Library's Librarians by the Sea podcast, where we share our love of a good book with you. I'm your host, Julie Travers. Nia Keith is the statewide climate change education manager at Mass Audubon and an advocate for climate justice in action. From her earliest beginnings, Nia has been a child of nature and a champion of the environment. After battling stereotypes that girls were just bad at science, she went on to earn a Master of Science in Environmental Education from Antioch University, New England, and served as the director at the Museum of Science Boston. Nia has facilitated workshops and webinars around the world on topics of STEM education, urban gardening, and environmental justice. Today on the podcast, we discuss the successes and challenges of climate advocates during the coronavirus pandemic and the different ways the environment has been impacted by COVID-19. Also, she shares tangible actions that you can take to fight climate change, resources to learn from, and organizations to donate to. Enjoy! Maybe to start, I'll just ask you if you could just give an overview of the the kind of work that you do normally and then how your work has been impacted by the pandemic. Yeah, so um, so I'm I'm an environmental educator by trade. Um, and I start with that because I have done a lot throughout my career in the realm of science education in different pockets. So I've done a lot of work with engineering education through the Museum of Science for three and a half years. Um, I've been a classroom teacher and I have done a lot of work in like out of school time environmental education. So I developed and ran my own summer camp in the city of Lawrence for a few years. Um, A lot of schoolyard gardening programs mixing science with um, food security, which is really a big heart project of mine. I I think the importance of understanding where food comes from and the um, providing accessibility to nutritious, healthy food options is a super important thing that needs to be focused on and connected to not only human health, but environmental health, and it has climate change implications as well. So I did that work for quite a while, Um, but most recently, I became the climate change education manager at Mass Audubon. So I am brand new to that position. I started it um, right before lockdown. I was working for about eight days when the lockdown happened. Um, And so this whole journey to answer the second half of your question has been really interesting, starting in a new statewide position with this organization um, and doing all of it remotely from home and meeting all of the staff. We we have several hundred staff at Mass Audubon, meeting everybody via computer instead of in person, um, and trying to work with all these amazing people on how to develop a climate change education program that reaches all the communities around the state, but speaks to all the uniqueness of the communities and the uniqueness of the ecologies around the state, and doing that without having actually seeing all of these communities <laughs> or natural ecological systems has been really interesting. Um, so it's had a huge impact in that way, but it's also provided opportunities to think outside the box about what it means to engage your community. Um, and it has also 
in a way given me a really great platform for pushing some of the things that I think are most important when thinking about environmental education, which is to include the built environment. So often when people think about protecting the environment, we think about the natural environment, which is super important, but we forget that the environment is anywhere you live and we need to have healthy human environments too. And it's just as important. So now that so many of us are spending time um, in our built environments <laughs> and are really super aware of that in this present moment, it's been a lot, people have been more, I think just more open to having the conversation of what does it mean for me to take care of my built environment in conjunction with the natural environment. So mm -hmm. this has been a really interesting time to be thinking about environmental education and climate change. Yeah, I can imagine. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so what kind of communities do you usually work with at the Audubon Society? Is it children or? adults or everybody everybody all age groups from from the just born being brought in in the arms of their parents all the way up to you know those who are retired and still very active in their community um we really look to work with all citizens of massachusetts um obviously we either massachusetts audubon society or mass audubon so we're specific to the state um and you know, as the education, climate change education manager, I really mostly work with the educators around the state who are designing programs um, with the public. And that can be anything from school programs. You know, we have lots of educators that go into schools and teach about environmental education, science education, um, you know, ecology. But we also have obviously tens of thousands of visitors onto our sanctuaries every year and there are programs there as well for adults we have a number of preschool programs um, including like actual certified preschools that run out of the audubon sanctuaries so it runs the gamut we have camps on i think 20 of our sites summer camps so that's a whole other set of programming um, and then we also engage, we've been really pushing to do a lot more youth engagement. So one of the projects that I work closely with is the Youth Climate Summits, um, which is, if you haven't heard of Youth Climate Summits, they're an amazing program that are these action-oriented youth-organized conferences where youth are the leaders, they determine the nature of the conference, they do the, all the heavy lifting to bring it to fruition, they have adult advisors that help them kind of figure things out, but it's really, the whole thing is determined and driven by the youth. And um, they have these conferences. And the thing is, is that, that makes these really cool is that at the end of the conference, the youth get to determine action plans that they are going to actually implement to mitigate climate change effects in their neighborhoods. So that they can determine community for them in lots of ways for some groups they you know are like my community is my school for others it's my community is my town you know but they determine the kind of action plan they want and then they get to spend some time bringing that plan into actual you know fruition make it happen and then we have a showcase where they come back and they share with the other youth groups what they were able to accomplish things that were harder for them to do than they thought it was going to be, you know, and things that they might do differently if they tried it again. So it's a really unique program of education and engagement. Hmm. 
I, I bet those guys are the best at um, moving digitally, moving that conference digital. I'm sure they're yeah, it's interesting. We've we've actually um, we've had a couple of different conversations. Most of our sites do their youth climate summits in the fall, but we do have a site right now that is working to have a summit this May, and they are looking to turn that into a digital conference. So that's been interesting. And um, since the lockdown started, I've attended quite a few webinars where people, um, both adults and youth, have been coming together to talk about how to move forward with climate action plans in, in you know, the pandemic environment where you can't do the same kind of things that you might normally do. You know, you can't get a large group of people together to do a tree planting day or so forth. So thinking outside the box about other ways to engage community in this important work because the work doesn't stop. We still need to keep moving forward. And um, the movement doesn't, it has not lost any momentum, even though we're all in our homes, we're still really driven. And it's amazing to see how people are just able to stay so focused, even when there's so much going on. Yeah, um, I think one of the reasons, we're, or the main reason that we're really excited to have you on the podcast today is just because it seems that climate change is in the news even more than I've seen it recently and with its connection to the pandemic. So a lot of people have questions about how they can help or, or what sorts of things that they can do in the fight for climate change. So if you don't mind it, we'd love to just ask your input on just like simple everyday things that people are starting to do that they can do either online or um, solo or with, you know, um, in a socially distant way. Um, yeah. For climate change. So what I think has been really awesome, um, and as you said, it's been highlighted in the news a lot, is that this reduction in human activity over the last two and a half months or so has brought to life very sharply for people the effects that our activities actually have on the planet. I think there's not a person alive over the age of two who hasn't heard of climate change, but I think for most of us, it's really easy to go about your day-to-day -day life and just be like, well, I gotta get here and do this, this, and you don't really notice the impacts of it. Um, and now here we have had this ginormous reduction in industry, a huge reduction in transportation, people aren't on the roads. And so we're seeing the skies clearing up over cities that haven't had like clean air in forever. I think I read an article that said that um, LA is enjoying the longest stretch of good, good air quality that they've had in 25 years. So they're seeing the cleanest air that they have seen in a quarter of a century right now <laughs> because of um, people sheltering in place. So the reason why I come to that is because when I think about what we can do to fight climate change, um, we're doing it now, except for people need to start doing this on purpose, knowing that they're doing this to impact what's happening to the planet and not because of the pandemic. When the pandemic is, we, when our restrictions are eased and people are allowed to go back out, we need to be cognizant of how much do I really need to be in my car? Do I really need to drive everywhere? Do I need to go and get this right now? Can I do this all in one trip instead of five trips? 
you know? Um, I will say even I used to be very, very guilty of just being like, oh, if I need something, I'll just run to the store for it. And now I go every two weeks and I think about how much that has reduced the amount of driving because I'm not going to the store every day to buy something. I go, I make one trip for two weeks. Think about all the car trips that takes off the road and think if every American did that, mm-hmm. you know, beyond COVID. Also, I think about all the stuff that I used to just buy because I could, and now I don't because it's like, is it worth my life to go out and get something? No, <laughs> but, that, <laughs> but that's like important because 21% of the greenhouse gas emissions that are produced by human activity comes from industry. That means the stuff we make and buy, it's consumption. So it's kind of like, it's a touchy point, I think, because people don't want to be told, stop buying stuff. And we're constantly being pumped that you have to buy stuff to keep the economy safe, to keep the economy healthy. And it's like, but every single thing we buy and consume adds to greenhouse gas emissions, not just in the waste, because most of the things we buy aren't meant to last long, but in the production, in growing the resources or mining the resources, in the energy it takes to run those factories. So reducing the amount of stuff we use makes a big difference. And these are things we can do whether we are, you know, isolating in our homes or post-pandemic when people are returning to some of their former activities. I could go on and on, but those are just a few, I think, of the big ones to think about. Yeah, I I think the thing that surprised me most was that um, how quickly you could see the impacts that you talked about. I mean, it only, I've only been here for two months or so, and we've already, you know, these articles keep popping up. You can see the Himalayas from, um, you know, a bunch of Indian cities. And uh, yeah, I guess I'm just really surprised at how quickly this all, you know, certain things started to clear up. Yeah. And I think what it really highlights is, again, just how unaware we all were of how much we were producing every day as it was. I just think we were all super unaware of how much greenhouse gas we were pumping out on a regular basis to the point that just stopping that level of industry for a few weeks could clean up some of the air light quality visibly. That's amazing. It's amazing. Um, You know, so I think about that. And a lot of times we think about the people shy away from certain actions when it comes to the idea of reducing things because no one wants to think about not having something they want. Nobody wants to live in the space where they're like, they feel inadequate with with what they have. But it's amazing about the amount of stuff we simply just waste. Um, I was reading some statistics for a project a week ago and it was saying something about eight to 10% of the greenhouse gases that are produced from food production actually is just food waste. Eight to wow. 10%. So that's like huge. I was like, that's just food we're throwing away. <laughs> this is not, this is like the opposite of reduction. This is just, there's so much of it and it's not even being used properly and we're just tossing it away. And that's like, all of that food that gets thrown away is related to land that is getting cleared to grow it, trees that are uprooted, soils that are destroyed. And every time we do that, we release greenhouse gas emissions. 
So even just being like really careful about like, when you go to the store, buy what you need, know what you're gonna cook for that week, buy only what you're gonna use to cook, and then don't get, buy anything more, you know? When you go out to eat, if they give you ginormous portions, split it with the person that you're with and like save yourself some money. And then also you don't have that being thrown away at the end of the night. So thinking about things like that too, I think is really important. Mm. Um, what do you, how do you think that was affected early on in the pandemic? There was a lot of uh, like hysteria over not having groceries and, and people overbuying like crazy. And even today, I mean, when you go into the grocery store, it's not likely that the shelves will be full. So does that contribute to that at all? I mean, there's no way to know for sure because I haven't seen statistics about the amount of food waste that have come out of people's homes in the last six weeks or whatever. Mm. Um, but I think, you know, a lot of what at least just is just my personal observations from the first few weeks of pandemic. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> when I went into the stores, what people were buying were a lot of staples that would not spoil quickly. So the things that went really fast were, um, you know, jarred items and canned items and peanut butter and bread, which people can freeze. And so in that case, hopefully people are kind of working their way through their supplies and those things aren't being wasted. What becomes, I think, more concerning is when people start overbuying like produce and things and then that stuff just spoils and it gets thrown away. Or a lot of the waste in the United States in the last few decades has come from actually restaurants um, because there's a lot of food that gets thrown out every night at restaurants. Mm -hmm. um, and also like any like kind of prepped, pre-prepared food, you know, that food is there ready to go for people to be able to quickly come and buy it. But then if no one buys it that evening, it goes into the garbage and it just gets thrown away. Um, so there really needs to be there needs to be a rethinking by the industry of how they handle and balance convenient for the customer, but also having a reduction in the amount of waste that they're creating, because we all have to deal with the consequences of that kind of waste within the industry. Mm. So I kind of want to switch gears a little bit, and maybe you can help us understand some of the challenges and successes that climate advocates are. Um, facing right now? Right now in this very minute? Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I would say that right now I think there's a number of people who are feeling very frustrated by um, regulations that are being rolled back by the government mm -hmm. that are being that were put in place to provide us with clean air and clean water and we're basically being told those things don't matter right now. And they always matter. <laughs> They're never not going to matter. They, they matter now more than they ever did. Um, and, you know, using the current pandemic as an excuse to roll back protections, I think is abhorrent. Um, and I think that for a lot of climate change activists and environmental activists at large, seeing, you know, regulations and laws that were put in place 30, 40, 50 years ago being chipped away or in some cases simply just tossed out by, um, by our current, current government is, is just, it's a huge blow. It's a huge blow, obviously. I think that's something that makes people feel upset and feels very sad. But at the same time, 
you keep fighting because this is not about this is not about an opinion. This is <laughs> this is a scientific fact. This is happening. And yes, you know, future generations are going to be living with this the majority of their life. But even people who are my age, I'm not going to die before we start seeing the worst of this. We already are seeing it. We already have people who are climate change refugees. We have it in the United States. We've had islands in the United States that are part of the United States, you know, geography that have swarmed with water because of sea level rise and residents have had to leave. So we already have climate change, like refugees within our own nation, that alone in other countries around the world. So when people think like, you know, I, yeah, I believe in it, climate change, but they're not acting fast because they don't think it's happening quickly. And one of the things that I see from COVID that I am hoping will translate into climate change action is that COVID was an immediate threat. And because of it, people were willing to make quick changes to their lifestyle. People were willing to shelter in place right away. They were willing to start wearing face masks. They were willing to start cleaning more. They were willing to start hoarding Rice Krispies. I don't know. They were willing to do all these things immediately because it was an immediate threat. We need to take that same level of urgency and community action and put that into climate change because it is an immediate threat. We don't have time to waste. We should have been making a difference 50 years ago. Like we are behind the clock. And the only reason why people don't see it is because a lot of people aren't living in the most sensitive areas. But ask somebody who lives on the coast and they will tell you that they are experiencing storms and floods and they have already lost ground. So it's happening right now. People need to get on the ball. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, that's a, those are all, yeah. I think everybody could relate to that uh, kind of connection between the two. Um, if maybe we could go into the connection between coronavirus and public health issues. Yes. I mean, yes, there's definitely, so I think it's interesting because, um, Obviously, climate change did not cause the coronavirus or vice versa. <laughs> you know, there's not, there's not a connection in that way. But again, I think that there's things we can learn from looking at what's happened with coronavirus um, and how it, has, how it has affected certain vulnerable populations. And for many of the same reasons that certain populations are being more greatly affected by coronavirus, are the same populations who are going to be and are being more greatly impacted by climate change. Um, you know, so one of the things that I know that has been circulating in the news a lot around coronavirus in the last, um, you know, four weeks is people were surprised at the impact on um, African American communities in particular and just at the fact that there's just been a higher rate of deaths among African-American communities. Um, and, you know, a, that, that is related to so many different things. Um, you know, there's a lot of communities who are low income and therefore they're living in conditions where they have smaller housing per person. So it's harder to socially distance. Um, you know, if you come from a low income community, which unfortunately a lot of African-American communities are low income or lower income, they may not have the same access to healthcare um, 
either insurance or facilities. And so all of that is going to mean that when you get sick, your chances of getting help or getting help quickly so that you can recover becomes reduced. And when we're thinking about what's gonna happen and what is already happening with climate change, populations that already are struggling to get adequate healthcare, um, struggling to get insurance, um, live in close quarters within urban settings are going to be getting some of the worst impacts of climate change. Um, just one example is thinking about living in, in, in the city, in urban settings. Um, cities are what we call heat islands. You have all of these solid, impervious, flat surfaces that basically just radiate more heat out as opposed to when you have like these wonderful like soft green spaces that kind of absorb the heat. You have these heat islands that like bounce the heat back out and makes these pockets of warmth. Um, and so you could actually have it be as much as five degrees hotter in a city as you would in like a, a non-urban setting a few miles away. And that doesn't seem like a lot, but when you're talking about that mixed with low income areas where there might not be um, air conditioning and now it's super hot and you have people with asthma or people with heart conditions. So that's gonna be a stress on their asthma, a stress on their heart condition and they can't breathe and they don't have health insurance. So the rate of death from that rising heat is going to be more than it's gonna be in communities where resources exist. And that's just one example. Mm -hmm. There's so many other ways that it's will and affect, um, you know, communities on the front line. I mean, like I was saying before, you know, the communities that are being flooded out are often communities that are low income. And so now they have to move and they may not have money to move. They have to reestablish their lives. And now they have to do that where? You know, so there's so many different ways that climate change can, does, and will affect various different communities. And those who are older, those who are low income and communities of color are going to be seeing, unfortunately, some of the worst impacts. Mm. Yeah, I think everything that you're saying probably is in direct alignment with what we're seeing in Chelsea um, and East Boston, why that, you know, has five times the rate of cases than the rest of Massachusetts because they're mm -hmm. um, facing all of those environmental and um, socioeconomic challenges that the rest of the state doesn't have to deal with. What about <laughs> the positives to public health as it relates to the pandemic? Um, I'm thinking a lot about how you see people just basically outside a lot more and without the option of public transportation, a lot of people are biking. Is that a good thing? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, <laughs> So I want to go on record that I am not going to at any point say that the pandemic has benefits. But <laughs> 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 However, again, yeah, do I think that we are opening our eyes to looking at our lifestyles in different ways that I think could have long-term benefits to our health and the health of the planet? I do. Um, I mean, I know just anecdotally from my own experience, 
I have been amazed at the amount of people I've seen in my neighborhood. People I didn't know were even my neighbors. I was like, I have seen so many teenagers. I was like, we have kids in this neighborhood. <laughs> so many. Um, but also like really beautiful things. I've seen so many families walking together and I never saw that before. Mm -hmm. I mean, sometimes I might see like a parent walking with their kid, but I, I mean, I'm seeing like intergenerational family walks happening and it's so cool. And I'm just like, oh, <laughs> we're talking to each other again. I've been amazed at how little when I am out, how little I see people on devices where before that's all I would see. You would see people even walking, looking down at their phones. Um, and now when people are walking, I don't see very much of that. I do see people still occasionally on a call and stuff like that, but for the most part, whether walking alone or with other people, people seem to just be enjoying being out of doors and being aware of the world around them, which I think from my personal opinion, um, will have, if it continues, will have really great impacts on people's morale, on their health. Um, and I hope that it helps people have a greater appreciation and awareness of what it means to have access to natural spaces. Mm -hmm. I think that a lot of times people take it for granted. You know, we don't even pay attention to what's growing around us. And I think more people are starting to realize how important it is to have access to that now, now that they're saying that, um, you know, it's a form of recreation that is open to us still. And I think people see the value of it. So I hope that that translates into people wanting to learn more about the natural spaces around them and wanting to protect the natural spaces around them. Mm. Yeah, I have noticed even just personally that I am just so much more in tune to nature. Like every plant that comes up in my yard, I'm just, I, I know what it is. Or like I want to know what it is and I want to be around it. <laughs> um, like I watched the whole cycle of my magnolia tree go through the whole you know, blooming process. And it was just like, I've never really even noticed that before. I mean, I know that it's beautiful, but um, yeah. So I think just personally, my own relationship with nature is, is much different than it was before. And I, I mean, if you could have a benefit, that would probably be one for me. I, I think it's amazing. I was reading an article uh, published um, by the Guardian, like maybe a week ago. And um, they were talking about how um, amateur botanists have started to use sidewalk chalk to identify, quote, common weeds um, all around Britain. And they're mm -hmm. writing the names of all these different little sidewalk plants and stuff and like putting labels with chalk so that people are learning about all these little plants. And now they're not just weeds, like people are recognizing all these different wildflowers and medicinal plants and things that they never even knew were right under their feet all this time. And so I reposted it to a blog, a site that I manage and was like, all right, I wanna see people out scribbling herbal lore all over the streets of America now. <laughs> because I think that's amazing. I just love, you know, this for me, this has been something that's been part of my life ever since I was a kid, being an environmental activist, being a, you know, an environmental educator, being, being a pagan and a witch, all these things means that I'm, hyper aware of nature um but now to see other people starting to find that same fascination and love with you know the things that are right under their feet it makes me super excited and i hope that is one thing that we 
definitely carry forward with beyond the pandemic scare. Mm. So just starting to wrap up, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about if somebody wanted to do their own research on climate change, where should they look or what are good sources to use that are accurate, that has accurate information? Yeah. So, you know, I'm, I'm a big believer in accurate <laughs> information. And to that end, I always tell people go to the source, like go where people are doing the research. Um, so obviously big names that I think most people would think about are things like NASA. NASA has a ton on their website about climate change. Um, so does NOAA, N-O-A-A, you know, the, um, God, I always forget what, the, what it stands for, but the Atmospheric Association, um, they have a ton of stuff. Also, the oh, Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC, they have been doing reports for years. They just came out, I believe, in 2019 with their sixth report that outlines climate change and the action that needs to take place. Um, and they just re just put that one out, like I said, in 2019. And that one obviously covers like the whole world. It's not specific to the United States. Um, but, and all of those are kind of, some of those like the IPCC is a bit, is very heavy and research-based and that might be <laughs> more than people want if they're like wanting to dip a toe in. So <laughs> um, the site that I usually recommend for people who are just getting started is Project Drawdown which I think is one of the best sites ever. I'm in love with Project Drawdown because they have a really clear, like really clearly say, this is the reason that climate change is happening. These are the things humans are doing and this is how we reduce it. And they have an amazing plan of just like action-based things. Boom, boom, boom. This is what we need to do in order to turn things around. And they actually are more, they want to see more than just a reduction in greenhouse gas emissions. Their plan is actually to get us to the place of drawdown, which is where the environment is healthy enough to actually start absorbing the greenhouse gas emissions. So not just zero emissions produced, but actually reversing the damage that we have done. Wow. I highly suggest Project Drawdown. Hmm. Um, what about for either parents with young kids or teens who are interested in um, sources do you have any of those yeah so there's a uh, so many so many um youth sources out there and honestly if you just google youth climate change there's so many of them because thank goodness the youth of america get it and they understand that this is something that needs to be changed right now um and they understand that this is the world they're going to be living with so they're like get out of our way we're fixing this now <laughs> So there's lots of sources out there, but for parents who are looking for something, one of the sources that I have been involved with, um, they're really active and they have really great stuff is Mothers Out Front. Mm -hmm. They do a lot of stuff. I mean, I'm sure they will talk to you whether you're a mother or not. I am not a mother, but I still attend their webinars and their activities, but they're really well organized and they're really great. Um, and I also know that the... Wild Center, which is an organization um, in New York State, and they started the Youth Climate Summit movement, and they are amazing with youth organizing and a really good resource for youth who want to get some climate education or get involved with their youth climate um, movement. 
Mm. Um, and then similarly, I know there's a lot of organizations that need money right now, but if you could recommend some places that, um, that could take donations that have to do with climate change at this point, um, that'd be helpful as well. Yeah, well, I would be completely um, probably fired if I didn't mention Mass <laughs> Audubon. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> because obviously, you know, climate change is a huge point of work for us. Um, to the point where we literally have now an entire department that is just devoted to climate change, advocacy, education, and resiliency. So um, I would say that is a great place to start. Um, but I would also say that any, uh, any conservation organization in your area is worth investing in because nature-based solutions to climate change are important. And we didn't get to talk about what that is and it's not my area of expertise per se but really it comes down to not only is nature beautiful to look at and worth preserving because of its intrinsic value but actually preserving and fortifying the strength of our natural communities is going to make our built communities better able to survive the changes that climate change is bringing so mm -hmm. invest in organizations that are doing conservation Invest in organizations who are doing advocacy and invest in organizations who are doing education. Those are the three pillars that we need in order to turn this ship around. Cool. Um, and then just finally, do you want to give us a sneak preview of some things that the Audubon's working on for the summer? Um, if you're able to, I don't know. <laughs> for the summer? Well, you know, everybody is working on all different kinds of plans for the summer as we're still pivoting to to providing services um, in a safe way for you know, everybody to enjoy, even though we're still going through the pandemic. So we're looking to do a lot of, converting a lot of our adult programs and um, some of our community engagement programs into digital space. So I know that there's, they just did, I think, a digital birdathon for the first time, which was really cool. <laughs> which I thought was really great. Um, and if you have any teachers out there listening, we're going to be running a climate change professional development workshop um, this summer for teachers who are interested in learning how to engage their middle school and high school students in climate change action. So I'm going to be one of the people facilitating that, but we're also going to have scientists from around the state participating in that training. Um, and it's going to be a really cool combination of online and um, hands-on projects that we are going to give people to do in their own backyards and neighborhoods. So I'm really excited about that because it's a great hybrid activity that we're developing. And of course, we're still looking um, into developing safe um, ways to engage kids this summer. Um, I think right now everybody is hoping that we'll have summer camps, but of course, just like every other organization that runs summer programming, we're waiting to see what the state says for best practices. We're waiting to see what the American Camp Association says for best practices, but we're hard at work at figuring out how we can engage young people and get them outside and do it in a way that's gonna keep everybody healthy. Nice. So thank you so much for your expertise and your knowledge and in your time, I, I really appreciate it. Yeah, no problem. Thank you for having me on your podcast. <laughs>